Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. As we prepare for Easter next week, we've been studying some passages uh, where Scripture tells us, especially in John, John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am. And these are usually big, bold, beautiful statements that Jesus is making about who he is. They're statements like, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. They tend to give us some helpful insight into the mission of Jesus and into Jesus' mission for us. At the same time as we are digging into these statements, I'm also pushing you to consider, why do you follow Jesus? Because the why of that statement, the why of that question, why do you follow Jesus, that can change everything. So let me give you an example of the why changing everything. In 2008, I was summoned to jury duty. In 2022, my wife was also summoned to jury duty. Same courthouse same amount of days that we spent at the courthouse, but two very different experiences. I tried to find a picture so that I could prove this to you, but I could not find a picture, so maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's not. You know, the days before smartphones, maybe that works for my benefit. In 2008, I had uh, big black earrings and a mohawk that stood like this tall. Uh, I generally wore ripped jeans and a t-shirt. When it was cold out, I had a nice, thick canvas army jacket that I got from an army surplus store. It was my favorite jacket. The thing lasted against everything, and it was so warm. But that was my general look. Um, I got summoned to jury duty, and I had to take off work from my regular job to go to jury duty where you get paid six bucks a day, which didn't make me a happy camper. I wondered, do I pack a lunch? Do I take the $6 a day plus and go buy a lunch somewhere? Do I read a book? Do I wear headphones and listen to music on an iPod because smartphones didn't exist in 2008? I was pretty grumpy about it. Plus, I hate driving in the city. Uh, You know, you gotta find parking and all of that. So that made me even grumpier. By the time I got to the courthouse, found parking, got in, found a seat, I put my headphones in and I sat down in a room full of a whole bunch of people I didn't know and quite honestly didn't really feel like talking to and I just waited a pretty long, Pretty boring time passed, and then a judge walked into the room, all his robes on, and he looked around the room at all the people, not very happily, and, uh, and then he said to us, you better have your paper with your number on it, because you're going to get your number called, and, uh, and then he told us most of us weren't going to get picked. I said, great, I'm glad that I showed up. Uh, And then he looked around the room and he started telling us why we weren't going to get picked. And then he looked right down at me and he looked me in the eyes with my earrings and my mohawk. And he said, some of you will not get picked because of the way that you look. (laughs) And then he, he turned around and he walked out of the room. And I thought, sweet. To his credit, I spent three days in that room and I never got picked once. 
I also never got less grumpy about spending three days in that room. So that was my being called for jury duty experience. My wife got called last year for jury duty. Pretty sure they upped the daily rate from 2008, but she wasn't excited either. Uh, she has an incredibly busy life, taking time away from it is quite inconvenient. You can check a little box that like postpones jury duty when you get called. She did that enough times that she was not allowed to check the box anymore. So she had to go. So when she had to go, I, I told her about, there's a little restaurant right near the courthouse. I said, you should go there for lunch. Uh, you have no husband, you have no children, just you time, you should take that and enjoy it. Um, she told me then when she got there and she's sitting in the room, the judge came out in the robes and I was waiting to hear the story. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to hear what her story was. And her judge came out smiling, <laughs> happy. He said, I'm so proud to be a part of a country where the citizens get to be a part of the judicial system. And he said, I know that it is such an inconvenience for all of you to be called here, and I'm so sorry for that. But it is such a civic duty that you get to be here, and I am so happy to take time out of my schedule to explain everything to you. So if you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand and ask me, and I'll answer any question you might have. And I'm like, you have to be kidding me. <laughs> this is really, are you serious? This is what the, the judge said to you. And, uh, and so... She, she told me, she's like, it actually made me really excited. She's like, I, I kind of wanted to get picked. Well, before she went down, she showed me her little number she got. She was number like 90 out of 300. And I told her, I said, well, this is easy math. I said, you have like a 3% chance of getting called. I said, they're never going to call you. You're just going to get sent home. Never tell your wife what the percentage chance is that she's going to get called. She totally got picked. And she got to serve on a jury, which she loved, and she got to ask her questions and get them answered, and she did the whole thing. And she had a great time, so much so that somebody even convinced her to donate her $9 a day to some charity down there, so she didn't even get her $9, what, whatever, my goodness. Two identical, like, jury duty experiences, right? Same amount of time, three days, same courthouse, and yet two very vastly different experiences with two judges. Why we were there were, were totally different. I mean, we were both grumpy going in. Neither of us wanted to be there. But that judge, maybe it was the same judge. Maybe he had one really bad day and one really good, I have no idea. No clue. The judge made all the difference. Why he was there changed everything for the jurors being there. Why are you following Jesus? Why do you show up here? Why do you bring your kids here? Why do you get your family here? Why do you go to work and say that you are a Jesus follower? Why do you get on Facebook and post your verses? Why do you do that? Why do you follow Jesus? The why matters. When you put that out into the world, the why matters. If you follow Jesus because you're scared of God or scared of hell, guess what you're gonna pass on to your children? following God because of fear. If your relationship with God looks like a tightrope where you're afraid to fall off this way or fall off this way, so you're afraid to make any decision ever, guess what you're gonna pass on to anybody else that you're trying to share your relationship with God with? 
If you think that God is vindictive or angry and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're just waiting for God to go, ah, you did that, gotcha. Guess what you're gonna pass on to the people that you're trying to share God with? Do you think you're gonna be a breath of fresh air to your spouse? No. Why you follow Jesus matters, but it also matters to the people that you care about. So keep pushing into why do you follow Jesus? Don't be satisfied with the answer, the Sunday school answer. And if you have come to the conclusion, if you've answered the question and you don't like the answer, you've been like, oh, you know what, Nick? I do follow God because I am scared and I don't really like that answer anymore. You can have a new answer. You don't have to be, that doesn't have to be your answer anymore. You can come up with a new one now. You don't have to be locked into the scared thing. You could follow God because you love him. Because loving him means living in an entirely different way. In the world, with people around you, fearing God is an entirely different way too. You don't have to be locked in to the answer you don't like. You can change it. Are you with me? Keep pushing into why do you follow Jesus. It matters. Now let's talk about our story this morning. If you have a Bible or you uh, open your Bible app or whatever you use to follow along the scripture, we're going to be in John chapter 11, so you guys can open that up. But first, we are going to do like a 10,000-foot view to talk about Jesus. Um, so imagine we're in an airplane, way up there, 10,000 feet. We're so high in the airplane, we can appreciate the mountain range, but we can't see all the individual trees and the individual rocks and the trails in the mountain. We can see the mountain range, and it's beautiful. It's a really big picture, not a lot of details. Does that make sense? Jesus' ministry only lasted three years. Sometimes we forget that. When we look in the Gospels, we don't have this 60-year history of the life of Jesus. In the beginning of the Gospels, we have an account of the birth of Jesus. And then a little later on, we have a picture of the ministry of Jesus. But we have these gaps in the life of Jesus. And the ministry of Jesus, which is what we're digging into in this series, it's three years. That's how long we have. Jesus lived to be 33. He was crucified at 33. When we read the Gospels, they're all about a few years of Jesus' life. And when we talk about one story like we do today, that's just one moment in a three-year ministry of that 33-year life. That three-year ministry was not spent making lots of money and filling the biggest concert venues and traveling to the furthest parts of the globe. If we think about what the biggest name Christian speakers and evangelists look like today, it looks more like that. Making lots of money, buying a big jet, flying around the world, filling up concert venues. Jesus' ministry didn't look like that. In reality, Jesus probably never traveled more than 100 miles. That's it. 
And in that time, he concerned himself with caring for the poor and the sick, the orphan, the widow, those in need, those forgotten, those who had been cast aside and pushed to the margins of society. He healed the sick, he made the lame walk, the mute speak, the blind see, the deaf hear. He cast out demons. He invited people to follow him and to become his disciples who had not been invited to become disciples of other teachers. He taught large crowds and small crowds. He spoke to those who had been cast aside by religious systems. And he spoke to those who were in charge of the religious systems. When he spoke to those who were cast aside by the religious systems, his words were full of grace and love and truth. When he spoke to those who were in charge of the religious systems, his words were full of truth and love, but also judgment, especially for those who had excluded others. And that judgment made Jesus an enemy of those who were in power. It's something that you can't forget. Power is something that is a very important commodity in this world. It is today and it always has been. And when you speak truth to power and when you judge those in power, when you threaten those in power, people in power will always try to keep their power. Jesus spoke truth and judgment to religious leaders who were in power. He called them a brood of vipers. He told them that they were wrong. When they came after him and said, you can't do this because it's the Sabbath, he said, actually, I can, and you are concerned with all the wrong things. You have been reading all of this incorrectly. You have the whole system upside down. He spoke those things to those who were in power, and that made him an enemy of those in power. The Roman government was the governmental force in power over the Jews, and they had an arrangement with the religious leaders that if the religious leaders could keep the Jews under control, the Romans would allow the religious leaders to stay in power. But if the Jews got out of hand, the Romans would come in, kill who they want to kill, and they would find new Jews to put in power. Which meant that the religious Jewish leaders would do anything to keep the Jewish people under control. If somebody would rile them up, they would do anything to stop that. And Jesus was beginning to rile them up. Are you with me? This Jesus guy was saying judgmental and painfully truthful things about the religious leaders oppressing weak and powerless Jewish folks. It was stirring the crowds. And what was worse was this Jesus guy was also doing incredible signs of healing. He was making blind people see. 
He was making people who couldn't walk, walk. So it wasn't just that he looked like a pretty good rebel leader. It looked like people believed he might be the Messiah that had been prophesied to come forward. The Messiah that was prophesied to be from the line of King David, a great and powerful king of the Jewish people of old. A king that could rival even the Roman king. Well, now we're talking a threat, not to the Jewish religious leaders, but also to the Roman leaders. And suddenly, if any of this could be true, a rebel leader, but also from the line of David, we have a real big problem. Are you still with me? Now, we're at a 10,000-foot 10 10, view, remember? How does our story today fit into this? Our story fits into this because the miracle that Jesus performs today in our story today convinces the religious leaders that they absolutely have to kill Jesus. If there was anybody on the fence before, and there were some people on the fence, some people said, we've got to end this guy, and some people were back and forth. If anyone was on the fence after today, they're not on the fence. Because there are folks who will look at this miracle and they will say, this is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. And there are folks that will say, this miracle will convince everybody that he is exactly who he says he is. And that's why we're talking about it this week. Because this miracle is the nail in the coffin or the nail in the cross, if you will. This is the one that convinces the religious leaders that it's got to go down. So let's come out of our 10,000 foot view. Let's bring the plane down. Let's, let's come into the mountains where we can see the trees and the rocks and the creeks and appreciate all the details. So John chapter 11, that's where we're at. I'm not gonna go through and read John chapter 11. You do that, okay? I, I, I think it's worth reading. I want you to know that I always think it's worth reading. Um, verses one to 16 set the scene for you. That's really what it does. Verses one to 16 tells you that there is a man named Lazarus that is sick. And uh, if you only read the Gospel of John, you won't really know too much about Lazarus. But, but here's what you should know. There's a man named Lazarus that Jesus loves. He's a good friend of his. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus and say, the one you love, Lazarus, this friend of yours, is really sick. And Mary and Martha, and you can read this in some of the other Gospels, uh, there's some other stories about them. There's a time when Jesus comes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and Mary takes the posture of a disciple. She, Jesus is in the house teaching, and Mary, rather than doing sort of what's expected of a woman, and cleaning and getting food ready and preparing to entertain, she comes in to where Jesus is teaching and kind of sits herself at Jesus' feet and sort of takes in all of the teaching and all of the things that Jesus is saying, sits with all the other disciples. And what that does is it leaves her sister Martha to do all of the work, all of the preparations, all of the getting the meal together to entertain all of the, the men and the disciples who are at the house. And, and you can imagine if Martha expects Mary to help her, Martha's getting a little ticked because her sister's in there enjoying the company of Jesus not helping Martha do the work. 
And so Martha comes to Jesus and says, can you please tell my sister to get to work and help me? And instead, Jesus says, actually, Martha, your sister has actually chosen well. She's, she's with me where she should be. And so Jesus actually commends Mary for being with him rather than doing all the busyness and doing all the work. That's sort of the famous passage of Mary and Martha. And so if you've ever heard somebody say, oh, she's being a Martha, that's where that sort of saying comes from is from this story. So that's, we know that about Mary and Martha. There's, there's times that Jesus has, um, has, has been with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before. These sisters have sent this message on to Jesus to say, hey, Lazarus is really sick. And, uh, and we know that Jesus cares deeply for Lazarus, but it's a risky thing. He lives in a place called Bethany. Bethany is a town close to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the tr- crucifixion is going to happen. It's right close. So it's like, uh, let's, let's pretend it's like Elizabethtown and Mount Joy. If you know that Elizabethtown is where you're going to get arrested, then calling somebody to come to Mount Joy is a little close in proximity, Right? Okay, so it's a little bit of a risky move to say, hey, Jesus, come help us out with our brother who's sick. We know that you could come heal him. I know it's a little risky. You might get in trouble if you come, but please come anyway. So they know that it's a bit of a risky move to call Jesus there anyway, but they do. Well, Jesus even announces to his disciples then. When the message comes in, he looks at the disciples and he says, this sickness will not end in Lazarus' death which probably sounds like a good thing. The disciples are like, okay, good, good. Jesus, is, he's ready to go. You know, I, I imagine they're all, okay, let's go, let's do it. But then Jesus doesn't move. The sickness will not end in Lazarus' death, and then Jesus sits there and doesn't move for another day, and then another day. For two days, Jesus doesn't move. The sickness will not end in Lazarus' death. This is clearly an urgent message, and Jesus doesn't go anywhere. It seems like it's got to seem uncaring. Jesus is the guy who has the cure. Jesus is the guy who could do the healing. Jesus can fix the problem. He can solve the issue, and he doesn't go anywhere. And then suddenly, after two days of not doing anything, after two days of not moving, after two days of not going, Jesus suddenly says, okay, let's go. One of the things that we have seen over and over as we have been in this series and we have looked at these I am statements, as John has recorded in his gospel, is that people have struggled again and again with the identity of Jesus, right? You remember this? People have gotten stuck on his birth certificate. Where is he from? Galilee. Is he from Bethlehem? Because the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Oh, he's not from Bethlehem. He was born somewhere else. Um, isn't he the son of a carpenter? He can't be the Messiah. People get stuck on all the wrong things. They question, is he the te- teacher? Is he the Messiah? Is he just a rabbi? Is he blah, blah, blah? Like, they get stuck on all the wrong things. People have been stuck on his identity. But even along the way, even the disciples aren't always sure. The disciples stuck with him. That's, the, that's kind of the good thing for the disciples. They haven't left him even when some of the other people have left him. But even the disciples aren't always sure who this guy is. In verse 14 in chapter 11, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, I'm actually glad that I was here and not at Lazarus' house because Lazarus has died. And now you may believe. 
What a strange thing. I mean, moments before Jesus says the sickness isn't going to end in Lazarus' death, and we sit in our rear ends for two days. Then Jesus says it's time to go, and now he looks at his disciples and says, I'm glad I was here and not there because now Lazarus has died. And because he's died, now you're going to believe. Something that Jesus is planning on doing when they travel to Bethany is going to make clear. It's going to perfectly clarify who he is so that the disciples will believe so that they'll know. Now, we don't know what that is yet. The disciples have no clue. They must, they must be so confused by Jesus' words. But something is going to clarify this for them. By the time that Jesus gets to the town of Bethany, four days has passed since Lazarus has died. Four days. Now, remember, Jesus has... Jesus has brought other people back from the dead. Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. Jairus was a high-level Jewish religious leader. His daughter died. Jesus brought her back, immediate, almost. Jesus actually uh, came across a funeral procession where there was a widow whose husband had passed away long before, and her son then died. Well, now this widow is left with no one to take care of her or protect her. And the funeral procession, he raises her son from the dead. But again, that's almost immediate, okay? Four days have passed. Lazarus' funeral is done. Lazarus is buried in a tomb. Mourners have come to the house. Family has traveled in from Jerusalem to the house. This is not a fresh sort of thing. Four days has passed since Lazarus has died. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are a well-known, well-to-do family. People have come in to mourn with them. When Martha hears that Jesus is approaching the city, she leaves the house and she goes to the edge of the city of Bethany and meets him there. And she comes to him and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Can you imagine the sort of angst and pain that she must feel as she comes to him? I just, I mean, we've all lost. There's no one sitting in this room that has not lost before. So just for a moment, don't, don't, go, don't go all the way into those shoes. I don't want you to, to bear all of that feeling for a moment, but just for a moment, slide a little bit into those shoes. Remind yourself of the sort of pain that you must feel in that sort of loss. But she walks up to Jesus, Jesus who has the cure, Jesus who has the ability to make the mute speak, the blind see, the lame walk, Jesus who has raised others from the dead, Jesus who has healed infirmities and cast out demons. And she comes up to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, if you had responded to the message that we sent you, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you imagine the weight of what she is feeling as she comes to him? And then she says, even now I know that, that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus, Jesus says to her, 
your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And she assumes that what he's talking about is the sort of resurrection on the last day, that, that all that follow God will have. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not what Jesus is, is trying to tell her. But that's not where her mind goes. He's been dead for four days. He's in a tomb. It's done. It's over. It's a done deal. Verse 25, Jesus says these words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? And I love, I love, I love, I love that Martha, Martha, a, a woman, <laughs> I, I love that she responds, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Because I am so sure that there are most of the disciples could not answer this way. That most of them would not have this confidence. That most of them would not have this answer. That most of them are still tied in knots about who this Jesus is. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said to them, I'm so glad that Lazarus is dead and I was here and not there because we're going to go there and then you're going to believe. Jesus wouldn't have said those words to the disciples if they had the confidence to answer in the way that Martha does. But Martha has the confidence, yes. I do believe you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the one that was sent from heaven to us. And then Jesus must ask about Mary. He, he must ask, where is your sister? Because Martha goes back to the house in search of her sister. Jesus isn't talking about a resurrection at the end of days. He's talking about something that's, a, that's a quite a bit more incredible. Jesus, again, has already raised others from the dead. People know this, but they're not thinking about this because it's always been so acute, so immediate. What they wanted from Jesus was healing. What they wanted was Jesus to show up while Lazarus was sick and make him better. Now what they want from Jesus is, I have no idea no idea. I think they're glad he's there. I think they're so thankful that he's there. And when he's there, what they find is a Jesus who will weep with them. We'll see here in a moment. They'll find a Jesus who will be with them, who will mourn with them, who will sit with them. They find a Jesus who is so human. We find a Jesus that is so human in these words that it will be with us. But what they wanted from Jesus was healing. And what God had in mind was something so much more whole. God's imagination is bigger than yours. And that is something that you must know when you walk out of this building today. More than anything else, God's imagination is bigger than yours. Lazarus is dead. He is so dead. No one is thinking resurrection. 
Mary comes to Jesus. She comes to the outskirts of the city, and when she leaves the home, the mourners that are at the home, the home is filled with mourners. They don't know where she's going. No one says Jesus is here and Mary's going to Jesus. They see Martha come back, get Mary, and leave, and they think, Maybe they're going to the tomb to be sad. We should go with them to be with them and be sad with them. So they follow. So when Mary comes to the edge of the city to Jesus, she comes with a crowd of family, of friends, of mourners. Mary shows up and she gets to Jesus and she collapses at his feet. And then she says the same words that her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary, who sat at his feet rather than be busy. Mary, who took the posture of a learner, of a disciple, one who loved his words, one who believed that if this rabbi would just show up, her brother would be made whole. If you had been here, he would not have died. In, in essence, asking, where were you? I called for you, Jesus. Where were you? And Jesus looks down at Mary and looks out at the mourners. And scripture says his spirit is moved. And Jesus wept. He cried. Jesus cried. The God of the universe, the God who created all things in heaven and on earth, the God who became human to come to earth to restore our relationship with him came to a point in the loss that he experienced with those that he loved where he cried with those who had lost. He cried. Jesus reached down and he lifted Mary to her feet and he said, Mary, where have you put him? Where is he? Where is Lazarus? What have you done with him? Show me. And so together, I mean, picture the scene. Picture the scene of Mary collapsed at his feet, of Martha off to the side, of Jesus now crying with Mary of Mary crying and now him lifting her to his feet and now the three of them walking together from the edge of Bethany to the tomb. Show me where Lazarus is. And they go to the tomb together. And scripture tells us when they come to the tomb, a simple tomb, nothing special here. It's a cave with a rock rolled in front of it. It's every tomb that you've ever pictured. When you picture the tomb that Jesus was placed in, everything you've ever been shown in every cartoon you've ever seen, every drawing you've ever seen of a tomb with a rock in front of it, it's this, it's just a simple tomb. And scripture says that when Jesus gets to it, his spirit is once again moved. What is it that moves him? Is it coming to the tomb and realizing that his friend, this friend that he loves, Lazarus, this one that he loves, is behind that rock? That he died. 
Is it, is it the finite reality of humanity? Is it that brokenness? Is it the realization that humanity ends and his friend is behind that tomb, is in there? Is that what breaks Jesus' heart as he comes and sees the tomb? Is it, is it the crying friends who have lost their brother and maybe their faith just a little bit knowing that if Jesus had shown up, they so believed that if he was just there, he could have made it all better. And instead of Jesus showing up and giving them what they wanted, a healing, God had something larger in store. And even though God has something larger in store that ultimately is gonna be better for them, the waiting in the here and now is so hard and so painful. And that must be so hard and so painful for God to watch us go through, even though the thing that's coming is so much better. The here and now is so hard. Is that what breaks his heart as he comes to the tomb? Is it, is it knowing that in just a week's time, that tomb is so representative of where Jesus is going to be behind something just like that? His body broken, his lifeless body there with a rock rolled in front of it? His disciples out here, broken and mourning and confused. What is it that when Jesus comes around the corner and sees the tomb that his spirit is moved? Why? I don't know. All I know is that when he sees it, his spirit is moved. What I do know is that what happens next is supposed to clarify for everyone gathered who he is. So Jesus says, move the rock. And Martha says, Jesus, he has been dead for four days. The smell is gonna be so bad. And you have to love the Bible. Because how real is that verse? You're not mincing any words. She just, the smell would be so bad. And he's like, he's like, did you, a moment ago, you said you believed me. A moment ago, you said you believed. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? A moment ago, I said, do you believe? And you said, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. You were sent from heaven to us. Do you really believe? Because if you believe, then you will see the glory of God. Your eyes will be open. So pick your head up, open your eyes. If you believe, move the stone. They roll the stone away. And Jesus looks to the sky, he looks to the heavens and he says this prayer out loud. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And then Jesus looks into the darkness of the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And out of the tomb walks Lazarus, wrapped with strips of linen, and cloth around his face. 
Jesus says to those gathered, take off the grave clothes and, and let him go. Some translations don't say Lazarus. Some translations say, and out of the tomb a dead man walked. I think I actually like that better. And I like it better because I am the dead man. So are you. It'd be easy for you and I to just write this story off as a nice story, file it away as another chapter of Jesus' life, but in my opinion, this story is so much more than this. This is one of the best illustrations that we possibly have in Scripture where we have the example that God's imagination is greater than our imagination because no one was thinking resurrection. Everybody wanted a healing. And everybody thought that Jesus' perfect will, Jesus' perfect way, God's perfect way, simply would have been for Jesus to show up before Lazarus ever died and healed him of the infirmity. And yet God's perfect will and God's perfect way was for Lazarus to die and for God to raise him from the dead. And in doing that, there was an example for the mourners, for the family, for Lazarus, for you and I, something greater was done than possibly could have ever been imagined. When Jesus is first told about Lazarus being sick, he does the unexpected thing and he doesn't move. And then consistently through the story, God keeps doing the unexpected thing. You and I live in a world where God often is doing the unexpected thing. And we often are wanting him to do the expected thing. We have an idea and we have a plan of what we want him to do. We even have a timeline of when we want him to do it. God, if you would just please do this, this, and this, and if you could do it this one on Tuesday, and then this one by the 13th, and then this one one year from now, we'll be good, right? We have it tracked out. But that's not how God works. God consistently does the unexpected, and God's imagination is consistently way bigger than yours. And sometimes in the midst of that plan, what we feel like is a whole lot of pain. And I imagine that in the midst of that, God is weeping with us, saying, I am so sorry that this hurts so bad right now. But there is something better and greater in store, and I will be with you to celebrate with you when that happens, and I am with you to cry with you while this happens. I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning. Whether you're online with us or you're here in person with us, I'm, I never know what brings you to church. I don't know why you got involved in church in the first place. I don't know what brought you to church today. I don't know why you rolled out of bed and decided to come today. But I'm glad you're here. I don't know if... 
I don't know if life is so good for you right now. And you're like, I'm not sure if I really need God. I don't know if you're in the place where life feels like a mournful crying mess and you're just hoping God is with you crying. I don't know if you're in the place where God has finally shed a light on the really good thing and you're after the sorrowful thing. Wherever you're at, what I want to promise you is that God never leaves you and God will never forsake you. God has always been with you and God will always be with you. I can't make you feel things that I feel, but I can tell you that for me, that cross has become a promise that God will never leave you and God will never forsake you. That if Jesus is willing to endure that for me, I know that he will never leave me and never forsake me. That I have been in valleys and I have been on mountaintops and in both places, God has been with me. I also know that the commitment that he has asked of me is simply this, the one that he has asked of Martha. Do you believe? Do you believe? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.